Now I'm going to read to you verses 1 through 4 as we get started, but then we're going to spend a little bit of time tonight just on verse 1, and we'll see how far to verse 4 we get. It says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Now there is a lot of valuable information here for us, even just in the first verse. And it's not just information, hopefully you're going to see, it's going to be for inspiration and, and encouragement. James calls himself a what of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. A servant, and some of your translations say bondservant. Let me give you another word. It actually means slave. Go ahead. I'm using the English Standard Version, ESV, the English Standard Version. Now, but if you have a little study Bible or your study Bible, there'll be a little note on that word. And you'll see a little note at the bottom, and it'll also say slave. Now, this is very important, as we're going to see tonight, when you realize who James is. Because when you find out who James really is, and then you realize he calls himself a slave of Jesus, it's going to be a little bit of an eye-opener. So we, let's take a look at to find out who this James is. I'm going to tell you who he is, but then I'm going to show it to you from the Scriptures. This James is not James, the brother of John. Remember James and John, the sons of Zebedee, the sons of Thunder, that Jesus gave them that nickname. This is not that James, and I'm going to prove that to you from Scripture. This is actually James the half-brother of Jesus. Now, when I say half-brother, it's because Jesus and James have the same mother, but they don't have the same father. As you know, Jesus' father is who? God. Who was James's father? Joseph. Go to Mark chapter 6. We're going to look at Mark chapter 6, verses 1 through 6. Starting in chapter 6 of Mark, starting in verse 1, it says, He, this is Jesus, went away from there and came to his hometown. And his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue. And many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? And is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James? And Joseph and Judas, by the way, you're going to meet this Judas. You've already met him. You just didn't know it. Actually, it's not Judas Iscariot. This is Judas. We know him as Jude. And Simon, and are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. So here we see that when Jesus goes to his hometown of Nazareth and he's teaching in the synagogue, people are amazed at the wisdom. It's obvious that God's given him this insight. But they're like, isn't this the carpenter? Isn't his mother's name Mary? Which, by the way, if the people in the hometown were saying, isn't his mother's name Mary? Chances are real good his dad has died at this point. Otherwise, they would have been saying, isn't his dad so-and-so? But that's also probably why a part of why Jesus didn't even begin his ministry until later on in life, because being the oldest son, if his father had died, he had the responsibility of being kind of the caretaker in the family. And plus, at the same time, if you know anything about the scriptures, the priests weren't allowed to really take their role as priest until they were 30, which is around the time that Jesus began his public ministry on the earth. But the scripture then says that they listed his brothers, James and Joseph and Jude and Simon. And then also there's his sisters. And so we know that James was a half brother of Jesus. But go to Galatians chapter one. We're going to talk about this more later tonight as we really begin to break this down. But later on, James becomes a believer. But not only does he become a believer in Jesus, he also becomes a leader in the church in Jerusalem. In Galatians chapter 1, look at verses 18 and 19. Paul's explaining his testimony, and he says, Then after three years I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas, that's another name for Peter, and remained with him fifteen days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. Now it's interesting, here James is also called an apostle. 
There, we always thought there was only 12 apostles. No, there were many apostles. Another passage in the scripture, you see Paul talks about himself and Barnabas being an apostle. But here we see that he goes, I didn't go see anybody else. After I got saved, I went out in the wilderness and Jesus taught me face to face. And after three years, I went up to Jerusalem and I met with Peter. And I didn't see any of the other apostles except James. And how is James described as? The Lord's brother. Go to Acts chapter 12. Look at verses 12 through 17. Now, we're in the middle of a story here. Peter has just been released miraculously from this prison that he was in. And we're going to deal with why he was in that prison in a little bit. But he was released from this prison. The chains fell off. The doors flew open. The guards are all sleeping. And he gets up and walks out of the city. And it doesn't it isn't until the, he leaves the city that it hits him. This isn't a dream. This is really happening. So when he realized this, verse 12, he went, this is Peter, to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark. That's John Mark, who wrote the Gospel of Mark where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice in her joy, she didn't open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, you're out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so. So they kept saying, it's his angel. But Peter continued knocking. And when they opened and saw him, they were amazed. But motioning to him, to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. So here Peter, when he meets up with the group that were praying for him. And by the way, for anybody that says you have to have faith or God won't move. These people are praying for Peter to be released from prison. He shows up at where they're praying and they say, nah. No, no, Rhoda says, it's really him. It's really him. Nah, it's going to be his angel then. Here are the same people that were praying for God to release them. And when God released them, they say, nah, I don't believe it. So isn't it tied to as much as our faith as we say? Now, faith is important. And the Bible talks about that. But don't, don't fall prey to those preachers that say, you've got to have so much faith. No. But when he comes in, he says, hey, it did happen. Go spread this to the church in Jerusalem and tell James. Go tell James. Now, some would say, wait a minute. How do you know this isn't James, the brother of John, the sons of thunder? Well, the answer is in chapter 12, where we just started in the middle. Go to the chapter 12, verse 1. About that time, Herod, the king, laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of the unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. So at the point that Peter gets out of the prison and says, go tell James... What had already happened to James, the brother of John? He'd already been killed. So when he says, go tell James, it has to be James, the brother of Jesus, the one who's a leader in the church there in Jerusalem. You're going to see this more in just a little bit. He became a leader in the church in many ways. The scripture talks about this. Go back to Galatians and look at chapter 2. Galatians chapter 2. Look at verses 9 and 10. In Galatians 2, starting in verse 9, Paul says this. He says, And when James and Cephas, who's Cephas again? Peter. And John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave me the right hand of fellowship, gave, gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. And only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. So Paul's explaining his testimonies more. And he says, when I went up to Jerusalem at a certain point, I met with James and Peter who seemed to be pillars. What's he saying when he says they seem to be pillars? Leaders. They seem to be leaders in the church. And he says... And they gave the right hand of fellowship that we were. They, in other words, they they ordained us. 
They agreed that we were to go on this missionary journey to the Gentiles, and Peter was to go to the Jews, and they were to go to the Jews, and they just asked us to remember the poor. Go back in chapter 2 to verses 11 and 12, or up forward in verses 11 and 12. It says, But when Cephas, this is Peter again, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from who? From James, Peter was eating with the Gentiles, but when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. So when they said, when, when Paul said that Peter came from James, who do you think, or what do you think he's saying? He can't, he, Peter came from where? I heard it over here. The church in Jerusalem. That's important. Because if you know anything about Acts chapter 13, there are leaders in the church in, in Antioch, it says in chapter 13, verses 1, there are prophets and teachers, and Barnabas was one of them, and Saul or Paul, we know him, was another, and some others like Manaean and Lucius. And there were these guys, and some, then chapter 15, we realized some people came from the Jerusalem church down to Antioch, and they said to the Gentiles, you've got to be circumcised or you're not really saved. Well, that's caused a problem, and the leaders of the church in, in, in Antioch went up to Jerusalem to go meet with the elders, and we're going to talk about that and the apostles to deal with this issue. But so when they say when they came from James, what they're referring to is they came from the Jerusalem church. Now, James is not only a pillar. You're going to see the scriptures actually act like he's highly associated with the church in Jerusalem. Now, he's not the pastor of the church in Jerusalem. I think the Bible teaches there were many pastors or leaders in the, each church. Some are prophets, some are teachers, some are evangelists, some are apostles. Some are pastors and teachers. The Bible talks about that in Ephesians 4, 11 through 16, how God uses many different types of men to lead the church. But James is, re is associated with the church up in Jerusalem. Go to Acts chapter 15. We had just talked about it. Go to Acts chapter 15. We're going to see a little bit more about what type of a pillar or what type of a leader James was in the church. In Acts chapter 15, we're going to look at verses 1 and 2, and then we're going to jump to verses 6 and following. It says, But some men came from down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, and they're saying, Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. All right, so we'll jump down to verse 6. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. And after they finished speaking, James replies, brothers, listen to me. Simeon, another name for Peter, has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, After this I will return, and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen, and I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord, and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Therefore... James says, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogue. And then, of course, they go on in the next verses and say that it seemed good to the apostles and elders to go with this decision and send a letter down to the church in Antioch. Now, listen to what's going on here, because this is something we need to understand. Some people left the church in Jerusalem and went down to the church in, in Antioch and tried to become teachers. And they said, we think you guys need to be circumcised or you're not really saved. Well, Paul and Barnabas said, we, we don't think that that's biblical. We don't think that's right. 
And they debated with him, and then they, with a group approval from the church, went up to Jerusalem to go meet with the church there in Jerusalem about this issue, because some people came from that church down and were causing problems. Now, the verses we skipped was where they had a whole church-wide meeting. And some of the party, the Pharisees, the circumcision party, stood up and said, we think they need to be circumcised and follow the law of Moses. Now then, verse 6 is very important. They didn't have this big debate amongst the whole congregation. Look again at verse 6. Who isolated themselves to discuss this issue? The apostles and who? The elders. Folks, let me tell you something. I think the Bible teaches that in some things, the congregation in our churches should have some input. But the final decision in the direction of what God is leading and how God is leading a church should not be made in a church-wide vote, but be should be made by the elders and those who have been given this responsibility to be the spiritual authority and leaders in the church. Would you not agree that in our churches today, in our church memberships, there are some that aren't saved? Would you not agree that even in our membership, people that are saved probably aren't walking in the spirit? then why are we giving everybody an equal vote when we seek the will of the Lord in a congregationally governed church? When the Bible teaches that there should be input, yet the decision should be made by the elders, the spiritual leaders. They, as you'll know, throughout this whole thing, if you go and study Acts 15, they'll get input from the church. They actually have the church approve who's going to go with the letter and so on. They're teaching them how to hear from God. But there's some things that the whole church shouldn't be arguing about and debating because they're not ready to hear it. Some aren't saved. Some don't know how to hear from the Lord. And those who have been given this responsibility should be the ones overseeing the congregation in this way. Now, at the same time, in this group of elders and apostles, as they get together, the Bible says they are having much debate. So if they're having much debate, were they all in agreement at the beginning of the meeting? No, if they're having great debate, even amongst the elders and the apostles, they're not all in a unanimity yet. And Peter gets up and he says, hey, guys, listen, you remember what I shared with you about that whole Acts chapter 10 and Cornelius story and how he gave them the Holy Spirit just like he did us. And then Paul and Barnabas get up and they share about what God had done and it confirmed it with the signs and the wonders when he preached to the Gentiles. And then something very amazing happens. James gets up. And he speaks and he says, actually, this lines up with the word of God. And he shared the scripture and everybody goes, that's wisdom. Now, as I've had the privilege of pastoring churches over the years, I was never in a church that had elders, but I would use the deacons sometimes in that capacity if they were qualified spiritually. And I would help churches start moving to that. And I work with a lot of churches to do that now. And some of those churches that I've pastored in the past have elders now because I began teaching them along that line. But whenever I would lead a church, I never wanted to be the only one making the decisions. Because the Bible teaches there's wisdom in a multitude of counselors. That leadership should come from a plurality of leadership, not an individual. But I also, in that group of men that I would try to get around me, I would look for the James. Let me explain to you who the James is. The James is that guy that sits in the meeting and doesn't say anything while all the other debates going on. There's lots of people with opinions and strong opinions and love to articulate them. But the James is of those who just sit and watch and listen and they pray. And then when all the hubbub is down, usually the James will say something. And it's short and direct and clear and everybody in the room realizes that's wisdom. In the last church that I was pastor, his name was Jerry. And when we would have our little meetings, after a while of an hour or so of debate, I would finally say to everybody, Jerry, what do you think? And when Jerry would speak, everybody in the room realized that's wisdom. I actually had the privilege of meeting with a man yesterday down in uh, Boca Raton. We met for a few hours yesterday as I met with him. He's an elder of a church in Virginia that I preach at up there. And not only that, he is on the board of directors for Liberty University. He's also on the board of directors for a couple of banks. And he's one of these people that doesn't speak very much. But when he does, people listen because it's been prayed through and it's got wisdom. And that's who James had become in the church in Jerusalem. We want to call him the pastor well, let's just say this. James had become such a spiritual leader, such a pillar in the church in Jerusalem, 
that he, when they say James, they just understood they were talking about the church in Jerusalem. Go to Acts 21. Look at verses 17 through 19. We saw this at the end of our study of Romans, how we looked at that one night and followed the, the journey of Paul. Did he ever make it to Rome? Did he ever make it uh, to Spain? And when we did that whole study in Acts 21, we saw this and you might have missed it. Look at verses 17 through 19. When we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to who? To James and all the elders were present. Now, after greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. So once again, as Paul's talking about his journey, remember, he was on his way to Rome, going to go to Jerusalem and bring the love offering first. And he hoped to go visit them. And he ended up in Rome, but it was after being beaten and arrested and on trial. And it took two years in Caesarea and then a shipwreck. And he ended up finally getting to Rome. But when they went to Jerusalem, he went and met with the brothers and the scripture goes out of its way to say, and also James. Now, here's what's really interesting if you don't know this. James wasn't always a believer in Jesus. He was a very strong spiritual man, but he wasn't always a believer in Jesus. Go to John chapter 7. I'm going to show you a couple things about James and his mama that may surprise you. Go to John chapter 7. Look at verses 1 through 5. Now, after this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He wouldn't go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. That's important. Now, the Jews' feast of booths, that's the Feast of Tabernacles, was at hand. So his brothers said to him, leave here and go to Judea that your disciples also may see the works you're doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. And by the way, Jesus knew full well what they were really saying. They weren't just mocking him and saying, if you want to be a public figure, why don't you just go show yourself to everyone? What did his brothers know would probably happen if he went to Judea? He'd be killed. And his brothers say, go to Judea. They want him what? They want him dead. And that's why Jesus understands this. That's why he says, my time has not yet come. And he understood what they were really saying. He goes, I'm going to die one time. And, and that is the time that God set for me. And that's why I've come. But my time hasn't come yet. I know what you're really saying, guys. You're saying, first, you don't believe in me. You're mocking me because you think that I should become a public figure. And you also want me dead. James, that we've already been looking at tonight, wasn't always this spiritual man that we see. And there's something else that the Bible tells us that you might not have known. Go to Mark chapter 3. In Mark chapter 3, look at verses 20 and 21, and then we're going to jump down to verse 31. In Mark chapter 3, starting in verse 20. Turn over one more page here. Then he, Jesus, went home and the crowd gathered again so that they couldn't even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying he is out of his mind. So his family go to get him because they think he's what? They think he's crazy. Jump down to verse 31. And his mother and his brothers came and standing outside, they sent to him and called him and a crowd was sitting around him. And they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Now, we've all heard this story about how his family was there and wanting him. But there's so many people at this house and so many there around him that they can't even get to him. Word gets to Jesus that your family's outside and they want to see you. And he says, who is my family? Those who do the will of the father. That's my family. But chapter three, verse 20 and 21, tell us why his family was really there. Why had they gone to get him? They thought he was crazy. So what happened? We don't know the exact time that James becomes a believer in Jesus, but chances are it's around the time of his crucifixion and his resurrection. 
Because the Bible clearly shows us that at the time that Jesus rose from the dead and appeared to his disciples for 40 days, at the end of those 40 days, Mary and Jesus' brothers and sisters were there as a part of the group who were believers. Go to Acts chapter 1. Again, for the sake of time and just kind of catch you up with what's going on in Acts chapter 1, verses 1 and following. We're going to start in verse 12. Luke is the writer of the book of Acts, and he talks and says that, you know, I've already written the first book, which is the Gospel of Luke, and told you all that he did before he was put to death. And then he rose from the dead. And then for 40 days he appeared to his disciples. And at the end of verse 11, Jesus has just ascended to the Father. And the angels are said he's going to come back. In verse 12, then they returned, the group that had been there and they saw him ascend. They returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, Mount of Olives, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew. By the way, that's not the James. That's the James before he was killed. That's John's brother. The son of Alphaeus and Simon the Zealot and Judas the son of James and all with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary the mother of Jesus and who? And his brothers. At this point, James is a believer in Jesus Christ. And in a short period of time, with the infilling of the Holy Spirit, he became one of the leaders in the church in Jerusalem. Now let's go back and look at James chapter 1, verse 1 again. James, the half-brother of Jesus, is that how he describes himself? No. He could have started his letter by saying, hey, 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 I shared a bed with him. We had a we had a small house and I had to share a bed with Jesus. I'm the half brother of Jesus. He doesn't pull that out, does he? What does he call himself? A slave of Jesus. Now, I don't know how many of you have brothers and sisters. Can you even imagine saying that one of your brothers or your sisters is your Lord, and you're their slave? You can't picture it, can you? You know what's interesting? Go to the book of Jude and look at verse 1. Remember how we already saw that Jude was one of the half-brothers of Jesus too? Look at how he starts his letter. Jude, there's that word again, a slave of Jesus Christ and a brother of who? Isn't that interesting? Here he's willing to say, I'm, one of ja I'm James's brother. But he doesn't say, I'm Jesus' brother. Because he knew that Jesus was different. That might help us understand something Paul said. I'm going to give you something the Tuesday night crowd didn't get. I'm gonna, it's just something the Lord just showed me. Go to, go to 1 Corinthians, uh, sorry, 2 Corinthians chapter 5 real quick with me. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We'll start in verse 16. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Look at what, look at what Paul's saying now. He goes, we don't look at anybody now as simply human. We used to regard Jesus as simply human. We don't do that anymore. And in the same way, if anyone is in Christ, they're a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. In other words, Paul's saying, look, in the world you got saved and lost. You got born again and people destined for hell. We used to think Jesus was just human. We don't do that anymore. He's more than that. And James has come to a place where he realizes 
Yeah, we might have shared the same mom, but we don't share the same father. And he's always existed. And he's God. And he's Lord. And I'm his slave. Jude says, I got no problem telling you that James is my brother. I'm proud of my brother James. He's one of the leaders in the church there in Jerusalem. And I don't have any problem saying that that's my brother. Um, but Jesus, he's my Lord. And I'm his slave. Let me ask you this question. What are you calling? Now, before you answer, let me give you a couple more examples of some other people and how they describe Jesus. Go to Romans chapter 1. Some of you say, wait a minute, didn't we just finish Romans? You'll never be done with Romans. Go to Romans chapter 1. Look at verse 1. Paul, there's that word again with that little note on it. A slave of Christ Jesus. By the way, bondservant means you choose to make yourself a slave of that person. A bondservant of Jesus Christ called to be an apostle set apart for the gospel of God. Go to 2 Peter chapter 1. Remember that other guy that was considered a pillar in the church? Not only James. Peter was another one. Go to, look at what he says in 2 Peter chapter 1. Verse 1. Peter an apostle of Jesus Christ. Let me go to 2 Peter instead of 1 Peter, sorry. 2 Peter chapter 1, Simeon Peter, there it is again, a bondservant, a slave, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Paul said, I'm a slave of Jesus. Peter said, I'm a slave of Jesus. I'm going to ask you, before you answer, let the truth sink in. What are you calling? Well, he's my Lord. Is he? Jesus said, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we do this and didn't we do that? And I'll say, depart from me, I never knew you. Jesus himself said, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? You see, I know a lot of people that say, well, I believe Jesus died for my sins. I believe the only way I can go to heaven is if I put my faith in Jesus Christ. But I'm going to call the shots. He said, unless you're willing to deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. You can't be my disciple. Folks, you don't make Jesus Lord. He is. And you either surrender to that or you don't. A wonderful old preacher that I can't wait to meet when we get to heaven. And I love to quote him, Vance Havner. He did a lot of years of preaching and he did a lot of revival services. And near the end of his life, he said this. He said, I used to, at the end of all my invitations of preaching, I'd, I'd give an altar call for those who want to be saved. If you want to be saved, come on down. And if you want to join the church, come on down. And if you want to get baptized, if someone's out there want to be baptized, come on down and get baptized. Some of you want to rededicate your life, come on down. And he said, I kept giving all these separate altar calls. And he said, finally, I stopped doing that. And I only gave one. And my altar call was this. If you want to acknowledge Jesus as Lord, come now. You see, he goes, I came to realize that if you're willing to acknowledge Jesus as Lord, it covers all that other stuff. One invitation. Is Jesus Lord in your life and whatever he's talking to you about, if you need to be saved, you surrender to him as Lord and you come right now. If he's telling you to be baptized, you surrender to him as Lord and you come now. If he's telling you to join the church, he's telling you to get right with him. Whatever it is he's saying, you surrender to it. I'm going to ask you, is Jesus your Lord? Now, I'm not saying we're going to do it perfectly because we're human and we still are in these bodies. Paul himself, the things I want to do, I don't. The things I don't want to do, I do. Who will save me from this body of death? There's a wrestling match that goes on. But in your heart, and the Lord knows your heart. Is he Lord? I love that man's prayer. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. You all have that. Lord, I do believe. I love how... Peter, sorry, yeah, Peter meets back up with Jesus after Jesus' death and resurrection on that third time that he meets with him. And Jesus keeps saying, do you love me? And Peter says, you know that I love you. And it sinks in. You know that I love you. And Jesus said, yeah, just let's get going from here. So I just want to challenge you on a daily basis to remember. When you gave him your life. He became your Lord. 
But he says something else here. Go back to James chapter 1, verse 1. I promise you, we won't break each verse down this much. Well, I try to promise you that. But look at the second half of that verse. To the 12 tribes in the dispersion. Now, we need to deal with who is, who is this? Who are the 12 tribes in the dispersion? Who is he writing to? Well, hopefully you understand who the 12 tribes are. The 12 tribes are who? The Jews. All through the scriptures, we see the nation of Israel broken down into and described as the 12 tribes. Uh, for the sake of time, we won't go there. But in Revelation 21, verses 9 through 14, uh, J Jesus shows John the new heaven and the new earth and the new Jerusalem. And its foundations are the 12 apostles and its gates are the 12 tribes of Israel. We see also in Revelation chapter 7 that the 144,000 Jewish witnesses that are going to go out into all the world as witnesses during the tribulation period, there's going to be 12,000 from each tribe, the 144,000 Jews. But again, the 12 tribes are the Jews. But who are the dispersion? He's writing to Jewish people, but who are the dispersion? Well, the dispersion actually is a pretty complex thing. You see, the Jews had been dispersed and scattered many times and were still very scattered at the time of this writing. And you're going to see that James is writing to a very similar group that Peter also writes to. But I need to clarify it for you. You remember back when God brought the nation of Israel into their land, he also told them, he said, if you walk against my ways, if you don't obey me, I'm going to remove you from this land and I'm going to scatter you. But he also talked about the fact that in the very, very last days, he would regather them from all the nations and Bring them back into the land, which is going to happen at the end of the tribulation period. But they've been regathered, Jim, since 1948. Actually, there are Jews everywhere still. They're just the fact that they're back in their land is a big, wonderful thing. And it makes it possible for all the prophecies about the Antichrist going after the Jews and chasing them out of the land and all that stuff to happen. The end time prophecies, Jews have to be in Israel for it to happen. And we're living in an amazing time period. But the regathering of the dispersed Jews has not fully happened yet. Go to John chapter 7. Jesus is talking to the Pharisees and the Jews and he makes an interesting statement in verses 32 and following and they don't understand it. But then they say something very interesting. Look at John chapter 7 verse 32. The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about Jesus and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I'll be with you a little longer and then I'm going to him who sent me. You will seek me and you will not find me where I'm, I am. You cannot come. Now, the Jews said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying you will seek me and you will not find me and where I am, you cannot come? So when Jesus said, I'm going away and where I'm going, you, went, you can't come. And you won't be able to find me. They're like, where's he going to go in this world that we can't find him? Is he going into the dispersion to teach the Jews who have been scattered among the Greeks? The Bible's real clear that when the God, God took the nation of Israel out of, the, of Israel and brought them into captivity in Babylon, when the time was up and the 70 years were completed, he allowed them to go back, but many stayed. And throughout history, there have been Jews who have been scattered over the whole globe. Oh, but the Bible says one day he'll bring them all back. Go to Isaiah chapter 11. Go to Isaiah chapter 11. Look at verses 10 through 13. In that day, again, prophecy and times language, the root of Jesse who shall stand as a signal for the peoples of him shall the nations inquire and his resting place shall be glorious. In that day, the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time to recover the remnant that remains of his people from Assyria, from Egypt, from Pathros, from Cush, from Elam, from Shinar, from Hamath, and from the coastlands of the sea. He will raise a signal for the nations and he will assemble the banished of Israel and gather the what? Dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. The jealousy of Ephraim shall depart and those who harass Judah shall be cut off. Ephraim shall not be jealous of Judah and Judah shall not harass Ephraim. 
write this one down, look at it later on. Zephaniah chapter 3. Zephaniah chapter 3 verses 9 and 10 talks about how in the last days there's going to be believers that come from everywhere, the daughters of his dispersed ones. So first and foremost, who is the dispersion? Dispersion is referring to the Jews who have been scattered all over the whole globe. Well, are they believers or unbelievers? Both. But there were Jews also at this time that James is writing who have been scattered because they were believers. The nation of Israel was scattered because of their unbelief. But there are also Jews who have been scattered because of their belief. Go to Acts chapter 8. Look at verses 1 through 3. Stephen has just been stoned and put to death for his faith. And Saul approved of his execution. We know him as Paul after he gets saved. And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. So after the beginning of the church there in Jerusalem, they were scattered because of their belief in Jesus. Now you know that Jesus told his disciples in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, that when the Holy Spirit comes, they're going to receive power and they're going to be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. Go to Acts chapter 2, though, and look at verse 5. I'm going to just show you something real quick about how awesome God is. Look at chapter 2 of Acts, verse 5. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from where? Every nation under heaven. For years, we've been taught that when Jesus started the gospel in Jerusalem, he told his apostles and his disciples, you guys are going to start here and you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the uttermost parts of the earth. Kind of like when you throw a rock in a pond, there's concentric ripples and it's going to start here and one day it's going to make the whole world. And as soon as we get the gospel to the whole world, then the end will come like it's on us. And let me just say something about our awesome God. Look again at chapter 2, verse 5. When the Holy Spirit came to indwell the believers and they all started preaching in Jerusalem... Where had God already bought, brought the believing Jews from into Jerusalem? Every nation on the earth. He had already brought believing Jews from every nation on the earth. Remember, they had been scattered. He brought some of them there into Jerusalem to hear the witnessing. So is God going to use the apostles to eventually get the gospel to the whole world? Or is he going to have people from the whole world come and hear the gospel and then also use them to get it to the whole world? Yes, we got an awesome God. He's going to get his stuff done. He's going to build his church and the gates of hell won't prevail against it. The question is, you're going to let him use you. But we keep thinking we got to come up with our strategies and our formulas and oh, we got to do a better job and we need to reach more people and we need to, we, 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 folks, let me just tell you, God's getting his stuff done. Just join with him in what he's gifted you to do and called you to do and enjoy the ride. Peter wrote to a similar group as well. Go to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1. But I want you to look closely at something Peter says. 1 Peter 1, verse 1. We've already seen that James is writing to Jews, most of them believing Jews, but most likely some unbelieving Jews who have been scattered. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1, an Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect, exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Is Peter writing to believing Jews or unbelieving Jews? Good for you. I thought you'd all would jump to the yes, because I've been giving you the yes answers both. But that was a trick question. He's writing to, how do we know he's writing to believing Jews who have been scattered? What does he say? The elect. He's writing to the elect. So James is writing to Jews who have been scattered. Most of them are believers. Some aren't. And you're going to see that in his writing. As we study the book of James, you're going to see him say things like he's going to when he gets to chapter 1, verse 20, sometime in 2024. But when we, when, we, when we get to that verse, you're going to see him say, receive the implanted word which is able to save your souls. Why would he write that to a person who's already a believer? Well, there's someone in his hearers who are Jews who aren't. But he's also going to say, my brothers, a lot too, because he's writing to mostly believers who are Jewish people who have been scattered 
Peter wrote to them as well. And as we look at dealing with trials, you're going to see that we're going to look at James's writings to the Jews, and we're going to look at Peter's writings. You can't study dealing with trials without looking at Peter's writings and James' writing at the same time. So let's start doing that in the time we have left. Let's take a look at James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. Again, we're only going to get as far as we did last night, and thank the Lord it looks like that's as far as we're going to get. In James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Now, James is writing to them to encourage them that even though they're suffering because of their faith in Jesus, God is going to use it to produce good fruit in many different ways. Now, the suffering that he's referring to here is not suffering because of our sin, but suffering that's tied to our faith. I want to take a second to clarify the difference, because we're all going to suffer. But sometimes we suffer just because we made stupid choices. There are consequences for wrong choices, but there are other times that we suffer and we, it's not tied to what we've done. The Bible talks about that. Go to 1 Peter chapter 4. Look at 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 15 and 16. Peter clarifies this a little bit. In 1 Peter 4, verses 15 and 16, he says, Let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. So he says there is a difference between suffering because of your choices or suffering because of Jesus. And I think it's very valuable for all of us when we go through a time of testing to check and see, is this happening because I've made wrong choices? Now, please don't hear me wrong. If you're a believer in Jesus, God is not going to punish you for your sin. He's already fully punished Jesus for everything you've ever done. But he will allow us to experience consequences of our choices. He'll forgive us. It's already forgiven. But that doesn't mean he'll remove the consequences. Sometimes he removes the consequences and we thank him for it. But sometimes he believes and knows because he knows what's best that actually the consequence will help us learn it better. That's why when Job went through the trial he went through and the suffering he went through, his friends came and said, this has got to be because you're sinning. And Job says, look, I've done the checklist. I've examined, I, I, I've checked, this isn't tied to my sin. And at the end of the story of the book of Job, God says to the friends, by the way, Job was right. This wasn't tied to his sin. So when you and I are going through a trial, there's nothing wrong with saying, Lord, are you trying to get my attention because I'm disobeying you here? Are you, when your kids are walking in disobedience to you, sometimes you'll go, <clears throat> And hopefully, that's all you need. By the way, I got three kids. Our oldest daughter, all you had to do was just look at her and she would straighten right up. The second one that came along, that girl, you could beat her until your arm fell off and she'd look, as if, look at you as if to say, do you feel better? We had to find what got her attention. And in the same way, your loving father, when he's trying to get your attention because you're veering off track, he's not going to punish you and make you pay for what you've done. But as a loving father, he's going to sometimes allow suffering to teach you, you don't want to do this. I tried to tell you. I said, mm, but you wouldn't listen. So I'm going to let that happen. When AJ, our youngest, was uh, like one year old, um, I would be in the backyard of the house. I was pastor, uh, pastor of a church in Chicago. We lived in a house right next door. And uh, I had a smoker, one of those vertical smokers. I love smoking meat. And I got a big one now with a side firebox and it'll hold four racks of ribs. But back then I only had a little one that could cook a few hamburgers. But Every time I would be in the backyard smoking some meat and wanting to play ball with one of my kids, I'd look around and AJ kept trying to go touch it. Now, I would say, AJ, don't touch it, it's hot. But at one, he, I want to touch it is more important than listening to dad. So finally, after slapping his hand and he still tries to reach it, I realized there's only one way he's going to learn. And so I said to him, you want to touch it? And he said, yes. I said, okay, here's what you can do. Just use one finger. Go touch it. Well, of course he did. And he let out a scream that got me in a lot of trouble with my wife. <laughs> but the suffering was because he made a stupid choice. Some of our suffering says we made a stupid choice. The neat thing about our God is the moment we just say, Lord, that was dumb. 
I'm sorry, would you clean up after me? Would you forgive it? He says, it's already forgiven and I'll start working to clean it up. But sometimes suffering is not tied to our sin. But it's just because we're a believer in Jesus. Not just because the world doesn't like us, but also has he not predestined us to be conformed into the image of his son? Well, by the way, we'll look at this later on in our study of James. The Bible tells us that Jesus learned obedience through what he suffered and having become complete. Wait a minute. I thought Jesus was already complete and perfect. Well, we're going to get into all this. There's a depth to what Jesus went through for us and on our behalf. We won't get there tonight. It'll be next week at the beginning of our study. But let me just say this to you. The Bible shows that sometimes and one of the great many times, one of the greatest tools God uses to mature us into the image of Jesus is the same stuff he had Jesus go through while he was on this earth. And that's suffering. When we say, I don't want to suffer, which none of us do. What we're really saying is, I don't want to grow. That's what you're saying. I don't want to grow. We'll deal with this more as we go further. But the Bible tells us that God has purposes in our suffering. Go to 1 Peter chapter 1. Let me show you the first purpose. We're going we're gonna to finish the first purpose tonight and we'll just touch on the second purpose of suffering and we'll pick up there next week. Go to 1 Peter chapter 1. Look at verses 3 through 9 and I'm going to give you a little quiz. I'm going to try to, as I start to teach, and some of you have been under my teaching now for a while and I don't want to just keep spoon feeding you. So be ready. I'm going to read a passage to you and I'm going to give you a little quiz from it. I want to teach you how to hear from God yourself. I don't want you just to be people, Jim says, Jim says, Jim says. I want you to get excited that you hear God too. In 1 Peter 1, verses 3 through 9, look at what Peter says here. He says, Peter, and we'll start in verse 3. Blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, Kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice. Now let's stop for a second. Would you not agree that in what he just said we rejoice? We've been given new life. We've been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The reason we're born again is because Jesus died and rose from the dead and he'll never die again. And because we're in him, we're secure. We've got a salvation that is unfading, imperishable, kept in heaven for us. We're guarded because of our faith in Jesus. We're guarded by God's power for that salvation better to be revealed in the last time. And in this we rejoice. Look at the next verse, though, or the rest of that verse. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, God chooses when and how and why. You have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you don't, don't see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory because you're obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Why does he give us trials according to this passage? They've come to prove what? Our faith is genuine. They've come to prove your faith is genuine. Romans chapter 5, Paul says the exact same thing. We've received this grace. Since we've been justified by faith, we've entered into this grace in which we can now stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. But not only that, we rejoice in our sufferings. Because we know that he's poured out his love into our hearts through the Holy Spirit that he's given us. Because we know that we're saved, we can even in the midst of our suffering rejoice because we know he's not mad. He's not punishing me. He's using this for his purposes to make me more like him. And the trials confirm our faith. Folks, let me just tell you something straight up. I've been a believer in Jesus since 1973, and I've walked with Jesus since 1973. I didn't have any uh, Hell's Angels period or run away from him period. I have not been perfect. Please don't hear that at all. But ever since I was eight years old, I've been growing in my walk with the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And I could look you in the eye and tell you, I know I'm saved. But you know what? In 2017, when the doctor said you have less than two years to live because we found non-Hodgkin's lymphoma and you have tumors all over your body and one of them is 10 centimeters. And by the way, if you don't know how big that is, it's the size of my fist. One of your tumors is the size of my fist, he said, and it's wrapped around your spine and an aorta. And we hope to get it but we're going to probably have to bring you real close to death to get it. We're going to hit you with so much chemo and so much prednisone that you might die because of the treatment, but that's the only thing that will even work against the type of cancer you have. Folks, I've had so much prednisone given to me that I had to take 100 milligrams a day. I went to the pharmacy to get my prednisone prescription, and the pharmacist says, no, we can't do that. It says here 100 milligrams. We're only by law. The U.S. government will not allow us to give more than 60 milligrams a day. I said, well, my cancer doctor is the one that gave me this. Oh, they have cancer? Here you go. And I would sit in the chemo room at the infusion center for eight hours every time as they dumped five different bags of things in me. And folks, let me just tell you, there are days I wanted to go home. And home wasn't in Indian Harbor Beach. But I can tell you this much. I knew I was saved. I know I'm saved now. Because in the midst of all that, I never once questioned whether or not, oh, I hope I'm going to heaven. It was confirmed because I got close. I got real close. And I was ready. And I knew. And God uses trials to confirm our faith. Go back to 1 Peter chapter 4. Look at verses 12 through 14. Beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Why? Because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Not only that, some suffering doesn't just confirm our faith because we know we're going to die and we know we're going there. Actually, if you're suffering because you believe in Jesus and you're rejected or mocked or made fun of because of your belief in Jesus, guess what? That means the world sees Jesus. Oh, and by the way, how do they feel about Jesus? Jesus in John 15 said, if they hated me, they're going to hate you. And if you are mocked or rejected or belittled or they roll their eyes because you're a believer in Jesus, guess what? Good. Good. That's why the disciples in Acts chapter 4, after had been beat, having been beaten for their faith in Jesus, went home rejoicing that they had been considered worthy of suffering for his name. They went back happy that they had been beaten. Why? Because they just said they beat us because they, believed, they saw we believed in Jesus. And if they saw that they, we believed in Jesus enough that they would beat us to get us to stop... They must really think we really, really believe in Jesus. <laughs> Do you understand? So we're going to see as we go into the book of James that we need to learn how to consider it joy when we face trials. One of the best ways is do a little sin checklist. Make sure this isn't just because you made stupid choice and you wanted to touch the smoker. But also, once you've made the checklist and you know that that's not it, say, all right, Lord, you use suffering to confirm our salvation and to shape your children. As we close tonight, I want to say to you, when I pastored churches and I would go visit people right before they had surgery, I would say three things. If you were having surgery and you were there getting prepped for surgery, I would come and pray with you, but I would tell you three things. The first thing I would say is this. When you put on the hospital gown, the end is in sight. Some of you, some of you are catching on to this in a little bit here. Second thing I would say is this. When the surgeon starts the surgery, lay still. And third thing I would say is this. And don't get off the operating table until the surgeon is done. Now, I love to joke. And I would do that a lot of times to kind of bring a little levity. But there's a little bit of truth in everything that I was saying as well. Yeah, you put on the hospital gown, the end is in sight. But secondly, when they're doing the surgery, 
Don't fight it. And don't get off the table until the purpose of the surgery is complete. Surgery is not pleasant. But it has a good purpose, does it not? It's a suffering, it's a trial, but its purpose is good. And we need to learn that our father is a good surgeon. And he has a good purpose. And we need to lay still. And we need to not get off the table until his purposes are done. We're going to see that next week when we begin. We pick up where we left off last night as well and how it also produces steadfastness. That laying on the table until he's done, we'll deal with that next week. I love you. Thanks for coming.